Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordoletto, and I'm joined by the three other legs of the, I want to say tripod, but quad pod doesn't make good sense, Dalon James, Molly Cornfield, Blake Evans. How are you guys? You call it the three other legs of the of the chair, maybe? You know, chairs have four legs, and I'm doing sure. all right, guys. It's a new year. <laughs> new year, new science, new ideas. Happy New Year, Quad Pod. Happy to be part of the Quad Pod. Quad Pod is back. Great to see you all. Hope you guys had a great holiday season. It's really cold here in Oklahoma. I barely made it to surgery today. Had to drive 10 miles per hour. A lot of ice. Real scary, if anyone cares. I kind of like chair instead of Quad Pod. Can we just settle on chair? You weren't too concerned about the fact I almost died today, and you're still thinking about Quad Pod. It sounds like the surgery got done, Blake. You're here for the podcast. Guys, if it's going to be a chair, let's call it the throne. There it is. Love it. Well, I like the idea that this is a throne. And if this is a throne, we're going to go north of the wall. And we're going to go straight to FNS reviews for our first article. Blake, tell us what's going on in Westeros. Gosh, I wish I had a cool Game of Thrones reference, but you're just, you're too good. Anyways, I'm just going to talk about my article. My article is entitled HCG Value in Early Pregnancy After IVF as Predictor of Pregnancy Outcome, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Let me stop you there. Is the big takeaway that it should be positive and that predicts being pregnant? Yeah, that's basically it. Who's up next? All right, Daylon, let's go to you next. (laughs) No, of course, you got to hear me talk for several minutes before we come to that conclusion. So let's dive into this article. First author, Sharon Galperin, and senior author, Stacey Pollack. Before we get started, how many days after embryo transfer do you all check HCG levels? I see a 10. I see a 10. I'll tell you, we check it at 10, but my patients are checking it on their way out of the embryo transfer, when they get home after the embryo transfer, shortly after they have the McDonald's French fries, they're checking it again. Um, I think patients are uh, are checkers. Absolutely. I don't know where the French fry thing came from, by the way, but it's a thing. Everyone does it. So, um, okay. So that's good to know. We also check 10 days after. So let's talk a little bit more about this. They discuss how early recognition and treatment of abnormal pregnancies can reduce adverse outcomes and emotional trauma for our patients, of course. Likewise, early detection of pregnancies that are likely to progress to live birth can provide reassurance to patients and clinicians. Both. They discuss that the hormonal milieu following fresh and programmed transfers differ from that of a natural frozen embryo transfer. As corpora lutea are disrupted after we do an egg retrieval when we have a needle puncture the follicle for a fresh transfer, and then in a frozen transfer, you have suppression of the ovaries and you are stimulating or you are giving estrogen and progesterone and mimicking a natural cycle, essentially. There are numerous studies that have calculated HCG cutoff values utilizing receiver operating characteristic curves to distinguish pregnancies likely to progress to live birth from those that result to pregnancy loss as well in comparison. However, there's no consensus that has been reached about cutoff values for clinical practice. So they wanted to take a look at this, look at specific cutoff values that might be clinically relevant. They did a systematic 
search between January 1st, 1985 and January 20th, 2022. The studies had to have measured HCG before 10 weeks gestational age. They excluded any pregnancy that was basically achieved by something that was not IVF. So IUI, they even put gift in there, a little throwback, gamete, intrafallopian transfer. So anything that's not IVF. They looked at the area under the curve and the confidence interval of the ROC curves for extracted. The HCG cutoff values from the ROC curve um, was looked at, and then they looked at the sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, which are all nicely summarized. And I know that you, you don't want to hear me define them, but I'm going to do it because that really is important and integral to the remainder of the findings here. So, and also for the fellows, you got to know this stuff anyways. You're going to have to know this, whether you like it or not. Sensitivity of HCG cutoffs. This was defined as the number of live births with an HCG above the cutoff value divided by total number of live births. All right. Take a mental snapshot of that moving forward. Specificity was the number of pregnancies not resulting in live birth with HCG values below the cutoff divided by total number of pregnancies that failed to result in live births. And then arguably, which I feel a little bit more clinically helpful, the positive predictive value and negative predictive value. The positive predictive value is the number of patients with an HCG value above the cutoff who go on to have a live birth divided by the total number of patients with an HCG value above the cutoff. And then negative predictive value is the number of patients with an HCG value below the cutoff who do not have a live birth divided by the total number of patients with an HCG value below the cutoff. So important concepts to know once we look at the results. They also looked at the ROC curves presented by the studies in this review. This was determined by their quote unquote optimal HCG cutoff as the value maximizing the sum of the sensitivity and specificity. So of the studies that look at live birth rate, day 28 and day 31 were ultimately utilized, which I'll get to in a minute. So what did they find? Over 1,500 abstracts were screened and ultimately over 34,000 IVF cycles were analyzed. Gestational age on the day of HCG measurement ranged anywhere from day 23 to 33 days, with day 28 and 31 being the most frequently amongst the studies. They looked at the day 28 HCG cutoff values of predicting live birth ranged anywhere from 49 to 108. So that first test, day 28, 49 to 108, with sensitivities ranging from 71 to 94%. Then they looked at the day 31 cutoff range from 145 to 411, with sensitivities ranging from 61 to 96. Sensitivities of the HCG cutoffs range from 61 to 96, while specificity range from 45 to 93. Positive predictive values. So now you see why these terms are important here. And as, if it's not confusing enough, I'm going to keep saying these numbers. Positive predictive values range from 55 to 93, while the negative predictive value range from as low as 21% to 95%. So pretty low on there. Given that the day 28 had a higher area under the curve compared to 31, HCG measurements on day 28 suggested overall there was a superiority in predicting live birth compared to day 31. But just to complicate things even a little bit more, they found that day 31 cutoffs had higher reliability in predicting live birth rates for frozen embryo transfers. So in conclusion, these data favor the use of earlier HCG monitoring for projecting the pregnancy outcome. The authors argue, and as I mentioned earlier, the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value might yield a little bit more clinically useful 
results are a little bit more easier to interpret, which I agree with. But the majority of these studies looked at the sensitivity and specificity. So they point out that if a negative predicted value is low as 21%, that's obviously pretty low. And so it clearly makes this unacceptable for identification of an abnormal pregnancy, basically saying you've got a lower HCG, don't give up yet on this pregnancy, continue to monitor it and track it over time is basically what they're saying. So the study had some strengths. There was a large number of IVF cycles that they analyzed. 16 countries were represented, so there's a high generalizability, which I thought was great. Some limitations were, of course, also included. Patient aid varied quite a bit. Some studies included multiple pregnancies, which, of course, are going to have a higher HCG compared to a singleton, and there also were varying days in which the HCG was drawn. So I know this; these uh, statistical concepts, these numbers are uh, easy to get caught up in and a little bit confusing, but overall, I think that this study is, is helpful. It's nice to know that there is a, a wide range here. I think it's helpful to at least look at these HCG values and kind of get a sense of what are we looking for whenever we have our patients come in and have their first initial HCG drawn. So if I haven't put you guys to sleep yet, what do you, what do you guys think of this study? Whenever you have your patients come in on, like you said, day 10 patients come in, are these numbers, do they kind of match up with what you all see as well? And pregnancies that progress and proceed on to uh, normal pregnancies and live births. It's always a kind of a two, twofer for me, right? I care about what that initial value is, and the higher the better. My, my general rule of thumb is I like to see it 100 plus for blastocyst transfer. But more importantly, it's the trend. I, I really want to see what it does next. A single absolute number that looks good is, is great, and you celebrate that win, and you high-five the patient through the phone. But I tell them we're going to celebrate again in 48 hours, and then we'll celebrate again two weeks from that and, and all kind of small victories. It'd be really helpful to have a tool, an online tool, where you can kind of plug in the initial number, plug in the, the mode of conception, and then really be able to drill down for that patient what's well, the likelihood that this is going to pan out in their favor. I always kind of go back and forth, like, what, do, what does the patient want to know? Does the patient care about the positive predictive value of that initial first or second value, or do they care about the negative predictive value? For me, I think the patients want to know how likely it is that I'm going to have a baby, not how likely it is that I'm going to miscarry uh, this pregnancy or that it's going to be um, ectopic. What do you guys think? Well, can I just cut? Uh, I don't think anything, uh, thank, thankfully for everybody, but um, I, I want to ask to clarify, like, how do you utilize this information accounts to the patient? Is it like come in at this day? They can come in earlier and you say, okay, the, the result will be valid as of, as of this day. Or is it more something like, and maybe this is too much information for the patient where they come in and they get a value and they're like, okay, well, that predicts 80%. You have an 80% chance now, whereas in two days, like, do you get down to that level of granularity with the patient in terms of statistical values? Or are you just like, okay, it's soon enough now for us to test. And this value is, you know, trending positive. How fine a point do you put on the numbers? I do something similar to Pietro where you talk about this is the first hurdle. There's going to be another hurdle, another hurdle. I feel really good about this number. I feel pretty good. I feel a little concerned and kind of more subjective. In terms of that calculator idea, I do have patients who are using these online calculators that, okay, the first time we see a heartbeat at six and a half weeks, what is my miscarriage risk after that based on my age? And how does that change? So they're already using these calculators. And I think if we did have something more accurate, um, that would be 
definitely helpful for patients. And then Petra, you also added, I want to know the first sentence of live birth, not miscarriage or ectopic. But I think our patients definitely also would, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I think uh, when we're deciding how do we intervene, do we continue meds, do we stop meds, some of that data would be helpful too, as we're looking at the big picture. Yeah, and I think this this is just something to, it's, it's nice to have these values in, and know that earlier monitoring or earlier ACG values are going to be a little bit more predictive. Having this range, they say you know, 49 to 108, it, it's nice to know. But Daylon, to your point, I'm not going to uh, tell the patient, well, you've got, based off of this, you've got a 71.5% sensitivity that this will be a live birth. You know, I'm not going to get into that thick of the weeds, but um, but it's just more reassuring to, to have this data in front of you. And then whenever you see these values in clinic too, say like, okay, this very well could progress to normal pregnancy. But at the end of the day, you're going to continue to trend it. You're going to, you're going to continue to tell them to take their medication, see what the ultrasound shows and, and go from there. But even, I actually had this conversation the other day with my nurses too, in light of the negative predictive value, I had asked, what's the lowest HCG you guys have seen and had a continuation of a normal pregnancy? And they, there was a 13 was the initial value of HCG. So it just goes to show that you, you can't always, like the, as this paper says, you don't want to quote unquote, give up on a really low value. Although I'm not going to be too excited to see a 13 as initial value, but just pointing cases to continue to trend it, see how it goes. All right. Well, we've gone north of the wall. Let's go, let's go to the boy king. Let's, uh, let's talk to Dalon James from FNS Science. Dylan, tell us what's cooking in science. This is a clinical paper that made its way into science. We all kind of batted an eye at it when we uh, when we saw us send it through. What are you doing? This this doesn't relate to mice. This doesn't relate to the the basic science laboratory. Tell us more. Getting outside my comfort zone, fellas. Although first, I, I have to admit, I haven't watched the show and I read the books a long time ago. Is the boy king like a good thing? Because uh, I might have to talk to you after the show if it's not. But movie jo jo Joffrey Joffrey doesn't end well in the show. Oh boy, that boy king. Oh. Actually, everyone hated him in the show, so that's kind of mean, Pietro. But that's uh, mean. he's royalty, and he's important to me, and he's important to this podcast. Dalen, please continue. Here we are, the boy king, hated by most. I've got something very special, as you alluded to, uh, my friends. It's a human study uh, from FNS Science, and I think more than anything, this is a really good illustration of the strengths of this sister journal combining clinical relevance with careful experimental design and rigorous execution. And yeah, I realized that that's the mandate for all of the FNS journals. But this story in particular, I think, has a science flair that really got me going. And let's start at the beginning. I'm going way back here, the initial studies of IVF in women, right? This is in like, you know, late 70s, when I was actually born, when I was the boy king, literally. Back then, you know, natural cycles yielding a whopping 0.7 oocytes per retrieval and 6% per cycle pregnancy rate. But it wasn't terrible. I mean, considering that these patients were starting from zero, but needless to say, we've come a long way uh, with the advent of, you know, exogenous gonadotropins, efficiency improved. But of course, you needed to then suppress premature ovulation. And in those decades since, there have been a lot of hacks of the HPO axis, but most commonly nowadays, GnRH analogs are used to either desensitize or antagonize block the GnRH receptor and thus prevent gonadotropin release and LH surge. But there's also this more physiological hack, I guess you could call it, 
by which pulsatile GnRH and LH secretion is suppressed, and that's during the luteal phase, or naturally, the high progesterone from the corpus luteum functions to that end, suppressing LH secretion um, in, I guess, a more natural way, although, you know, uh, at non-physiological levels when in the context of IVF. So exogenous progesterone can and has been used to suppress the LH surge, and it does it robustly. It's also bioavailable in the form of progestin and is relatively cheap, so more patient-friendly. Uh, on the negative side, of course, it's been shown that elevated progesterone during controlled ovarian stimulation decreases pregnancy rate. But this manifests uh, in fresh cycles, not frozen, suggesting strongly that the negative influence manifests at the level of the endometrium, not on the follicles and oocytes embryos, right? Uh, and nowadays, a lot of the clinics are freeze all, quote unquote. Uh, so maybe progestins could provide a robust patient-friendly alternative to GnRH analogs, uh, you know, if everything's going to get frozen anyway, who cares about the fresh cycles, right? But the question is, is that okay for follicles to develop in the context of this super physiological level of progesterone and all the downstream metabolites thereof? The jury is still out there. Uh, I put the question to you guys. Have you ever messed around with the progestin for LH suppression? If so, why? If not, would you consider it? Yeah. There, there are a few things that I think I'm more excited about clinically than the use of oral progestins instead of an antagonist. Think about like all of the stuff that's made its way into the field with just not enough data to say that it works, that it's safe, that it works across multiple patient populations. I think the story of oral progestins is that this one made it to the field the right way. There are multiple RCTs done in DOR patients, PCOS patients, egg freezers, and in all of the RCTs published so far, the data is incredibly reassuring that it does what you want it to do, prevents ovulation. It's incredibly suppressive. You don't see breakthrough ovulations. Blake Evans can tell us that it's cost-effective in egg freeze in embryo cryocycles. And it seems to be safe for eggs and embryos and their reproductive potential in the future. It, to me, it's like a win-win-win win, win. And I love it when there's more data that comes out that says it's non-inferior to kind of our conventional way of doing things. Yeah. And just briefly, we, as Peter was saying, when I was a fellow, we did a cost-effective analysis using these uh, mitroxyprogestin acetates and it's extremely cheap. It's like five cents a tablet, something crazy like that. And when planning for, if you're doing OSET cryo or, or a frozen cycle, uh, these patients would save around $2,500 to $3,000 per cycle just by not using an antagonist. Whoa. I don't know. Did you talk about table three yet, Daylon? I'm less, I'm less uh, optimistic on progestins right now. Yes, I haven't got into that yet, but I'm coming to the results. And I, like you, Molly, am uh, a little bit more, I guess, uh, I'd say agnostic to, to not put a negative spin on it. But um, yeah, it does give me a little bit of pause. And, and why don't we cut to the chase there? Uh, you and I are not alone, Molly. So, some people think that elevated progesterone, you know, intuitively may have a negative effect on oocyte and or embryo quality. And to address this question, Daniela Braga uh, from the group of Edson Borges at FERT Group in Sao Paulo uh, designed this prospective cohort study in which two age match groups were compared. One was treated with progestin and the other was treated with GnRH agonists. And to your point, one of the end uh, metrics there, Blake, um, was that it costs like $12 uh, to treat with the progestin and like 350 
uh, per patient average with the GnRH antagonist. So the economic gain is obvious there, um, but there's still some questions in terms of the oocyte embryo quality, and that's what this paper was about. Um, and that's where I thought they did a really great job. There are 144 cycles in each group. As I said, they were age-matched. It amounted to 1,360 and 1,408 embryos in each the progestin and GnRH antagonist groups, respectively. And here's where they really science it up, I think, going beyond the typical outcomes of blastocyst formation, pregnancy, miscarriage rates, you know, all of those being very important endpoint metrics. Um, but here, I think they they did, they really went deep. Uh, all of those 2,768 embryos were monitored by time-lapse imaging embryoscope. Um, and what I think was the most critical metric uh, of their approach, the time to reach discrete benchmarks was measured. They measured time to pronuclei appearance and fading, time to two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight cells, uh, as well as time to morulation, time to the start and completion of blastulation. And they had a lot of metrics, metrics of the, the delta between some of those benchmarks. Um, and the results were interesting, uh, maybe a little bit disconcerting. First of all, uh, no significant differences, and the positive, I'd say no significant differences were noted in FSH dose, the number of aspirated follicles, retrieved oocytes, maturation, fertilization, blastocyst formation rate, although I say no significant. I think if you look at the numbers, it seems like the follicle oocyte numbers in the progestin group trended down a bit. Uh, so speaking to a little bit about the quality of the stem there and the quality of the product, the most notable, uh, obvious, and significant differences were in the timing. Uh, the progestin group was slower. Um, and also, in a mixed result for the progestin group that I was a bit puzzled by, although perhaps it makes sense, the, the cancellation rate was increased uh, 15 versus 2.5% in the progestin versus GnRH agonist. And the implantation rate also at 65% versus 45% difference, uh, respectively, between those groups. So it seemed like, and, and the logic for that, or the explanation, plausible explanation for that, was that there was an embryo selection within, that uh, some of the embryos that were bad, but maybe were not perceived as bad, went into the GnRH agonist group that were excluded from the progestin group. But I, I think the bottom line here is that there's a difference, right? And there's a difference in the timing of embryo development. I don't really know what to make of that. Um, when something so hardwired as pre-implantation embryonic development timing gets skewed, I get nervous. I mean, we're talking about things that are hardwired, BC-specific uh, level at the molecular level, metabolic level, fundamental to the mitochondria. But, you know, as I alluded to earlier in the show, I don't have to make these choices for real people, but someone had to make these choices for actual people in this human study in FNS science. I put it to you guys. Would you be comfortable with progestin priming after hearing about these results? I hear from Pietro and Blake that you see the benefit, a little bit of uh, maybe skepticism from Molly. After hearing the results, do you guys uh, change your view at all? Or do you think that uh, the, the existing data is relatively robust and you would continue on course? But uh, I put it to you guys, uh, would you be comfortable with progestin priming after hearing about these results? Would you change any of your practice in treating your patients? What do you think? Well, I'm going to start with one major bugaboo here. We're not progestin priming anything. Priming suggests that you're doing it before a cycle. This has kind of showed up in the literature a bunch of times. You're not progestin priming these cycles. You're using a progestin to suppress ovulation in the same way that you do a GnRH antagonist. That's semantics. 
but I want to say that out loud again because it, it does bug me. I think the, the bigger issue with this paper is they're not explicit about these transfers occurring in a fresh versus frozen cycle. There's a line in the method section, but then they say embers are transferred on the fifth day of development. They don't describe any vitrification steps. They don't describe frozen embryo transfer protocols. There's a little bit of ambiguity here. And if these cycles truly occurred in the fresh cycle, yeah, of course, implantation rate and cancellation rates are going to be totally different. No, duh. But if this was truly done in a frozen embryo transfer cycle, then yeah, there's a little bit of data here that I think is interesting. And fundamentally, I think the morphokinetic parameters are new data, helpful data, unique data. But if I'm going to be a little bit of a time-lapse imaging, um, uh, push back on time-lapse imaging a little bit, there's not a ton of convincing data that the morphokinetic parameters make a whole lot of a meaningful clinical difference. There's a lot of debate about that. So yes, they found these different morphokinetic parameters, but does it translate to a, a real clinical outcome in a freeze-all cycle? I don't know. I think that's uh, TBD. I think the reassuring thing is that you have a non-statistically significant yield, non-significant maturity rate, non-significant fertilization, and blast development rate. All of that, I think, is kind of solid early near the intervention time point that kind of is reassuring and is in line with the existing data on this topic. I think for me, this does throw a little bit of doubt or a little bit of hesitation on using progestins, um, especially for a patient with a poor prognosis. Um, I think a lot of the RCTs are in good prognosis patients and egg donors. And I think the table that I'm really hung up on is table three, the cancellation rate. So the cancellation rate was 15% in the progestin group, 2.5% in the antagonist group. Uh, and that's 15%. There's no way that's going to be cost effective if all those poor people have to restart their IVF cycles. They say that the cancellation is more because of poor thawing of the embryos, which is a pretty high rate of that, but they don't actually break it down. And I don't know if that's all of the cancellations or if it's um, including asynchronous growth, which could be related to progestins potentially, uh, and what was going on in terms of those cancellations. And then the implantation rate is better in the progestin group, but the denominator is number, it's um, gestational sacs with heartbeats over denominator number of embryos transferred. So there can be a lot of variation there that you're seeing when you're removing from the denominator these canceled cycles, and then you might be transferring more embryos when you have more embryos in the anti group, but just fewer implanting. So I just am not um, it's not peachy data for progestin cycles for me, but then I still have a few more questions about uh, what this data means. Yeah, and just to follow up on that point quickly, talk about the economy of it. It's not just the cancellation that hits you in the wallet, but bear in mind that if you're doing a fresh transfer, you don't have to pay the costs of the freeze all on the thaw. So there are, it's more complicated than just that metric of $15 here and $300 there. Um, and also to your point about the timing, I will say that something that I was a bit puzzled about, and this is more maybe to your point, Pietro, about the morphokinetics having limited uh, clinical value or uh, uncertain, ambiguous clinical value, is that it was kind of weird that you would get uh, statistical differences, let's say, at T2 and then at T7, right, um, which are the time to reach seven to right, time to reach two, for example, but all the intervening time points, there was no statistical difference. So it's kind of weird that like the embryos are going slower, but then they catch up and then they're slower and then they catch up. So it, it raises the questions of like when you have, I don't know, maybe a mixed data set like this and the, given the diversity of pre-implantation human development, just fundamentally that uh, maybe these numbers are not 
as troubling maybe is the word as we see and maybe there's a bit more variety and whether or not progestin or progesterone and metabolites can have an influence on folliculogenesis, which I'd be surprised if they didn't, right? I mean, this is the, the sex steroids and their metabolites do a lot of different things across the axis. I, I will say that we're not sure whether this slowing down of the embryo is actually meaningful clinically. So the jury's still out. But uh, as, as Molly said there, it does uh, raise, I think, a lot of important questions to consider. Well, the top line number I think is important to to remember is that their their kids score, their known implantation uh, score, which is kind of the summary of what all the morphokinetic parameters mean at a high level, is no different. So you may have some noise, like Dalon said, at the individual time points, but cumulatively, the these embryos look like they behave similarly from a morphokinetic parameter. Right, and I, you know, and I look at two big picture. I mean, yes, I, I, the cancellation rate, of course, is a concern, um, but to your point, Molly, about having a different denominator, you know, number of embryos transferred, I mean, that's really going to change that number drastically. So there needs to be consistency in that, from my opinion. But when you look at the subsequent parameters, they look at pregnancy rates, miscarriage rates, pregnancy rate per started cycles, there's not a statistically significant difference. And so to me, this is all reassuring. I know there's other studies that corroborate with this and show that progesterone um, for pituitary suppression has equivalent outcomes. And it's cost effective as well. So I wouldn't say this is a deterrent per se. Uh, of course, I think that maybe a little bit larger sample size might be needed too before we definitively say or start to be concerned about it. But I still overall feel reassured about this data and prior data as well. And I just saw that they cited my paper in there. That was nice of them. Looks like they didn't say anything bad about it. So I think we're good. Let's move away from progestins for a second and let's um, get back to gametes. Blake, Molly, what's your clinic's policy on carrier screening for patients who are going to use donor gametes? Do you make your recipients undergo expanded carrier panel? Do you recommend it? What's happening locally for you guys? We're recommending expanded carrier screening, but it's, of course, not required. But we actually, if they do undergo it, uh, we do have them meet with the genetic counselor. And the genetic counselor actually reviews all of the expanded carrier screening results for our donor sperm and donor egg. And so that way we can make sure that we're really appropriately counseling the patients about that. We're similar. We don't require it. But certainly if the donor is a carrier for anything, then we very strongly recommend that the patient also be tested as well and offer genetic counseling as well. Yeah, at Boston IVF, our, our policy is to strongly recommend expanded carrier screening because we know that the sperm and egg donors are also undergoing expanded carrier screening. Um, and it's an opportunity to risk reduce without kind of the added cost and rigmarole of PGTM. It's like one of those few opportunities where you have to like make a good decision and you can make it here. The, the tricky part that we've noticed over the last couple of years is that these panel sizes keep changing. It's hard enough for our own patients when the panel sizes change and the patient's coming back into care after previous pregnancy. Do you update the panel? Do you not? Where do you kind of hit diminishing returns? But it's also really tricky from the um, sperm and egg banks perspective is these panels are changing. These panels are getting bigger. But most importantly for them is when you run an expanded carrier panel on a donor, you're going to find stuff, stuff that's mostly not actionable for them, but occasionally stuff that can have an implication for their own personal health and sometimes potential implication for the recipient, even if it's a, just a, a basic carrier, not someone who's a, truly affected by the condition or has a shared genetic risk. 
In 2021, the ASRM actually put out a practice committee guidance on this and recommend that all gamete donors should be screened for at least cystic fibrosis, SMA, and hemoglobin disorders. And if you're an egg donor, add on the fragile X syndrome screening. But the guidelines also state that performing expanded carrier panels on these prospective gamete donors may be appropriate and highlight the importance of not using ethnicity to kind of guide this decision. One of the problems that comes up is when you do these expanded panels is that you're going to pick up some of these potentially actionable items like Fragile X for the egg donors. That's a big deal. Or things like ATM gene mutations. For example, homozygosity or compound heterozygosity in the ATM gene is, of course, associated with the autosomal recessive condition that we're all familiar with, the ataxia telangiectasia. But being a simple carrier for single ATM gene mutations associated with a moderately increased risk of breast cancer. And having a female donor conceived child with who, from someone who had an ATM gene mutation could be a big deal. Um, and what's the burden of, of, of counseling for that? What's the burden that the sperm banks or egg banks have in sharing that information with these, with these folks? This was an interesting study and something that I kind of really hadn't seen done before, but this was done at a single sperm bank from 2017 to 2021. And they looked at all of the sperm donors who were coming through and offered them the expanded carriers panel that was anywhere from 261 to 283 recessive conditions plus the X-link conditions. And the reason I give the range is that as you kind of enter the program, the panel size has kind of changed and evolved. And these potential donors were identified as having potentially significant health risks on the basis of their expanded care results in kind of the following scenarios. Potential donor was either heterozygous or hemizygous for a variant, which could confer health risk to the carriers, plus or minus a significant personal, family, or medical history. Or a potential donor was homozygous or compound heterozygous for variants that are associated with autosomal recessive conditions that could confer a health risk. In total, they had nearly a thousand potential donors having an expanded carrier panel during that time. And of course, most of these donors were white. But in total, only 19 or 2% of prospective donors were found to have a potential significant health risk on the basis of their expanded carrier panels. Of those 19, 11 were either heterozygous or hemizygous for a condition that conveyed significant health risk to the carrier. These were things like ATM gene mutations, fumarase deficiency, which if you remember is your HLRCC gene, familial hypercholesterolemia, that's a big one, and even Ehrlich-Danlos. Two of the 11 potential donors carried variants in genes that were associated with X-link conditions. These are Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and factor IX deficiency. Luckily, both of these um, donors who screened positive were asymptomatic. The only individuals here that were found to have any health effects associated with these genetic findings were the two men who were found to have mutations in their LDL receptor gene. And both of these men actually did, in fact, have elevated LDL in their lipid panel when they were kind of going through screening. The only other stuff that was found was uh, two donors who carried two copies of a variant for biotinidase deficiency. That's something that's kind of a big, heavy-hitting clinical condition, but kind of interesting and helpful to know. The big takeaway here is that there's a 1 in 50 chance of finding something that may have some real-world consequences for that donor or the potential recipient of that person who's receiving that donor sperm. That's not nothing. And I think what these findings reinforce is that the donor applicants need to be really properly educated on the potential personal health risk that may be identified when they are kind of going through the donor screening process. Um, many of these conditions are associated with clinically significant genes on the carrier panels have later 
age of onset. They have reduced penetrance. They have variable disease severity. So the percentage of people who remain apparently asymptomatic can vary pretty significantly. And just because they don't have symptoms at the time of producing and donating sperm doesn't exclude the possibility of them developing clinical manifestations in the future. So these potential um, donors really need to have some of this personal healthcare information shared um, with their physicians and kind of have the appropriate follow-up. The ASRM states that donors who are carriers for these recessive conditions that confer significant health risk to carriers should be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. So it doesn't close the door on saying they can't be a donor. It provides some flexibility for gamete programs to keep these donors who may otherwise be suitable and allows a little bit for more autonomy for the recipients who are looking for donors with specific traits. And you know, you guys know how hard it is to find a sperm or particularly an egg donor that kind of checks the boxes for what you're looking for. We already have such a limited pool. But by allowing these donors with these variants to participate in your donor program, it really requires that recipients are properly informed of the associated health risks and understand the potential implications for their offspring. And I think there's a there's an, op an opportunity here for collaboration. The donor programs, the recipients, the reproductive endocrinology programs all need to have a kind of a, a nice, elegant way to share this information, have an opportunity for genetic counseling, and then receive some informed consent about using these donor game meets, which it's tricky, it's time consuming, and in small programs can be tough to do, and big programs can be tough to do. Blake, Molly, Daylon, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Is, is Has this been your experience? Have you come across these examples yet in your practice? You know, when you do these, this carrier screening, you're almost bound to find something, What you know, carrier for something, whether or not it's clinically significant, like in this study versus just something like, hey, you might want to make sure that you're also not a carrier of this autosomal recessive disease. I mean, it it happens very commonly where we find they're a carrier for something, but the donor is not a carrier for anything. Um, or And I also commonly find that despite who go through the donor consents, and if the donor's not a carrier for anything at all, they ultimately opt to not test for anything, um, you know, which is reasonable. But I think as long as you just have that shared decision-making process with the patient, let them know. And I think this is good information to know too, in terms of counseling. Hey, there's probably one in 50 chance that they're, the donor could be a carrier for something. But a lot of this stuff is is pretty clearly spelled out by these banks, um, by these companies too. So I think this is a nice little nugget of counseling information and just have that shared decision process making for whether or not you want to test or what to do with this information. But I think, I think this is very helpful. Yeah, I think the point that you made, Pietro, that it's important to, especially because these expanding carrier screenings are so big now and so broad now, to still allow the use of donors with some of these conditions, as long as people are appropriately counseled, uh, as it can be hard for people to find donors that fit a certain ethnic profile or whatever they're interested in. Um, so it's hard to find someone who isn't a carrier for anything, as Blake pointed out. Yeah, I mean, that I, I'm thinking the same thing there in a much more you know, meta dystopian Gattaca type way, which probably no one came to the show to listen to, but I don't care. I'm going to share my thoughts anyway on it. It's just, this is, I feel like how you slide into that kind of mandate. Uh, it used to be people fell in love and then they made a baby and they tolerated now what we realized to be retrospectively this myriad, you know, X-linked and all these, these occult carrier mutations or, you know, so I, for one, feel like while this is important to, to have clinical information opportunistic when you're looking at this stuff anyway, 
I'm just worried about the, all this information because it creates not a zero tolerance, but I think it creates a hyper vigilance and a hyper wariness. And I wonder when that is going to bleed into just uh, quote unquote natural uh, conception where people think, well, I can't just have a baby. I need to have this ECS, even if I'm going to be conceiving naturally. The flip side to that, Dalen, is you have a couple who has a baby affected by something terrible, some glycogen storage disease that they didn't know they were at shared risk for. And they have this kid that they have to raise who's going to have a very different life than the kid that was born without it. And they want to continue to build their family. The expanded carrier panel is a way to identify that risk and risk reduce. I think it's not a requirement. Um, I think patients deserve the right to know that it's it exists. And depending what state you are and, and kind of your finances, you have access to ways to prevent passing it on to the next generation. But I think that's really different from the scenario where you're using donor sperm or donor eggs. And here you have an opportunity to forego that whole even rigmarole of PGTM. And you have an opportunity to risk reduce by just making a better decision. And that information itself is really, really powerful. Tricky part is by getting that information, the person who's donating the sperm or the eggs may find out something about them, um, something that is potentially actionable, something that they weren't expecting to know in the process of getting their couple hundred bucks to donate sperm or a couple thousand dollars to donate eggs that has real world implications for them. And I think the communicating that finding to them, communicating that finding to their healthcare provider and communicating that finding to the recipient is really hard and really tricky. And I think there's landmines of liability there and landmines of, uh, of how you can get this right and wrong. I think this is an issue that's not going to go away. These panels are only getting bigger. More people are using donor sperm and donor eggs. We're going to have to figure out a thoughtful way to, to, to plow through this because we're not going to, we're not going to stop doing it. Kind of to counter the Gattaca argument, um, although I think it's also a very valid one. Historically, before we even had genetic testing, communities have been doing their own forms of expanded carrier screening for forever. So in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, where there's high rates of Tay-Sachs disease, there would be matchmakers who would know which families had higher risk versus others, and they would help matchmake around that. Um, and so I think I think that this is important, but yes, it all comes down to patient counseling and patient choice. And the onus is really on us to do really, really good patient counseling to help them make the best choice for them and for their families. Just to get in front of it, I'm not poo-pooing the, the whole idea of it. I'm just saying what has a front has a back. And I agree with all your points. It's just a lot of information. What has a front has a back. I like that. I'll have to figure out how to weave that into conversation like you just did. Thoughts from the boy king. Hey, you guys have been uh, hinting at the metaverse. Um, meta. You know, this has showed up a couple of times. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but Molly, you have kind of the anchor article for this month's podcast about the metaverse. Yeah, let's talk about it. So I thought we'd start off 2024 with a consider this piece that kind of sounds like it's come from the future, uh, maybe a sequel to Gattaca that Dalon wrote. Um, so the article I picked is called Exploring Metaverse Fertility Clinics, The Future of Treatment. It's by Julie Morgan, who's at the Assisted Reproduction and Gynecology Center in the UK. So the title of the piece totally makes us all think of a sci-fi movie and First off, let's define what is the metaverse. Have you guys heard that term before? Have you heard that being thrown around? Some nods. Okay. 
yeah, more familiar with it. Well, in pop culture, I've often heard this used to describe like a virtual online world. And usually people will have avatars, which is like a character that represents you. In the article, quoting the author directly, she defines that the metaverse is a rapidly evolving digital ecosystem, envisioning an immersive virtual space where users interact and experience life in ways not possible in the physical world. So I usually hear metaverse used in terms of entertainment, video games, doing virtual reality. I don't really know what has to do with fertility and sterility. I did know an artist once who had a whole art persona on the metaverse. He used uh, the platform Second Life for this, and he would actually sell these tiny digitized versions of his paintings to these people within the metaverse that they could hang in their like metaverse homes and metaverse offices. And that sounds like an early, early stage NFT. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he made actual income from that. And so that's how I'm imagining, imagining myself as like a little artist, except I'm a fertility doctor. And then I'm, then it kind of falls apart from there. So um, the author talks about some ways that the metaverse can be used to enhance fertility care. We've talked a ton about AI, artificial intelligence on this podcast. And one idea she has is that these AI avatar chatbots can provide kind of the general information and counseling about assisted reproductive technologies that we do at clinic. Um, so maybe a virtual avatar of a nurse or a doctor get, doing the consultation for IVF. Um, I know in med school, we had these like interactive characters kind of AI on a rolling computer screen that would go discharge the patients and, and give them kind of discharge information. And I think in one survey, the patients actually liked the computer nurse more than the actual team. I kind of feel like this is already being done already uh, in healthcare. Um, the author also writes about how the AI enhanced metaverse can help monitor patients, adjust STEM protocols. But again, I'm not really sure what makes up the metaverse and not just AI, which we've already talked a lot about AI developing protocols and uh, adjusting STEM protocols. Um, so she does describe how the metaverse could be used to create trainings for embryologists and for surgical procedures for REIs. And I do think this is sort of relevant. We're such a high volume field. I don't think there's that much of a shortage of cases to train with, but it's always good to have kind of a sp safe space to hone your skills. And I think a lot of us use laparoscopic and robotic trainers in residency to really hone those skills, uh, which is sort of using virtual reality in a way. So I can maybe imagine what the metaverse for practicing embryo transfers or ICSI might look like. And then kind of the last positive point she makes about the metaverse is that it might create a nice uh, support group for patients. It might feel better to be sitting in a room full of avatars talking about your experience than on a message board. And um, that the metaverse could also help patients kind of get into the IVF laboratory so the patient can, through a virtual uh, encounter, get a sense for what's actually going on kind of in that black box of what's happening in the IVF lab. So challenges the author talks about with the metaverse are how to bill for metaverse services and concerns about data security. And again, that's really just the same issues we're already dealing with when we talk about electronic medical records and doing virtual visits and phone visits. So it's an interesting concept. Uh, I haven't spent much time in the metaverse myself, um, but I'm having trouble imagining how it's totally different from just the conversations we've already had about AI. And I also do worry the metaverse probably won't be that accessible to many people. The author says this is really going to be popular with Gen Z and millennials, but I do still worry about access even in these younger groups. You need 
great internet connection to be able to run a whole virtual world and virtual platform, you need a really fast computer and you need to be able to navigate a really complicated interface. And so I, I do think there might be some access issues. And I would be surprised if anyone's really going to invest the money in developing an entire metaverse of virtual for IVF. I think AI, I can see uh, people investing that, but um, I don't really see people investing in an entire metaverse in the near future. So what do you guys think? Is there a place for the metaverse in fertility care and fertility training? So is this like I wear an Oculus and talk to a patient because I don't want to get dressed? Like, is that what this is? How, I mean, how is this? I'm, I guess I'm being facetious, but also kind of serious. How, how is it different from just like a Zoom visit? I'm having trouble imagining it. <laughs> I really I think to, to, as someone who read the article is very invested in it uh, from a more a fear <laughs> perspective, um, there's a, there's a, all these manners. I mean, if you look at it, there's like 10 different ways that that this virtual world could be inhabited. Um, and it I think it runs the, the gamut from enhancing the patient experience, you know, the virtual tour of the lab being a great example and the support groups versus- Yeah, that'd be cool. The, that, exactly. I think it'd be cool versus the training I like for the doc. So there's all many facets. But when I was reading it, I got a, a, a bad feeling because uh, I don't know about you guys. If you've seen the young guys, I, I have a, a kid who got into Roblox. And one day I was like, yeah, who you want in Roblox? He was like, I don't know. Uh, and it turned out he was playing with like some 48 year old dude in Indiana. And I'm just like, what is that? Okay. I guess it's okay. Roblox is not, uh, I don't know, but it, it made me feel a little bit weird. And I wonder about, you know, in this sense, I would say the mandate should be that whatever changes you do that involve the metaverse should be primarily to enhance the patient experience. And I think that in this age of telemedicine post COVID, there's been, and no shade on on you guys, you're amazing doctors, but I think there's a lot of doctors out there that are like, yo, we can really pump out the visits here, the efficiency, I can see more patients. And I think that's where we get into a slippery slope where it's not good for patients. I think dissociating the patient from the, the, the health provider is one of the great risks and the great costs of this whole telemedicine thing. I can tell you guys, I wish I were in the room with you right now doing this Zoom and all these group meetings we do in our practice, I think they are much less engaging because we're not there in person. Uh, and I think the same could be said for many facets of, of this telemedicine experience. I think it's also true for our clinical teams. It's one thing to be the doctor in the metaverse consulting with the patient. Then that nurse who never gets to meet the patient, see the patient, shake the patient's hand, congratulate them after their ultrasound. Um, I worry a little bit about what that burnout looks like for the clinical teams who just feel further and further removed from the patient who sometimes used to show up in the door, now logs on to Zoom and then doesn't even log on to the Zoom anymore. You get to see an avatar instead of them in person. You know, it's um, there, there, there are some downsides to this. This is not, not all, not all gravy. Yeah, I think from a thinking from a patient perspective, having things like a tour of an IVF lab, like here's what happens to your eggs after they're retrieved. Here's where the embryos go, because patients don't actually see that. And I think that would be cool, maybe having educational videos on injection, stuff like that. But in terms of visits, and I don't know, I guess that, like you said, the, the group of people with sitting amongst avatars. But but can a, can a quick YouTube video do that? You know, like someone walking yeah, through with it, the camera, kind of showing the space. 
Yes, like, but it could be about their cycle. It could be, here's your hormones. Here's this cycle versus last. I think there's a way that you can make it an interactive experience where the patient really feels engaged with their stimulation and transfer and their embryo, everything. I think that. I, that that I hear. That I think would actually be really cool. And I think save physician time doing some of that face-to-face -face nitty gritty counseling, probably do it better and more consistently, honestly, than a lot of physicians. And I think for the right patient, really give them all the information that they would want to know so that then I can swoop in and really do the human part of it, which is like, hey, I'm really sorry the cycle didn't work. How are you guys feeling? What else is going on in your life when you want to kind of jump back on the wagon and get going after this again? Um, called me old fashioned, but I think that's the stuff that makes the difference between uh, the next attempt at pregnancy and the ones who say, you know what, I think we're done. We're burnt out from this whole experience. Yeah, and by the way, you know, when you guys are getting ready for your IVF, you've got to pay for the medications, pay for the visits, all this, and you also got to buy this Oculus thing to put on your face, so that way you can talk to us. So if you don't have one, you've got to buy one. I'm just imagining what that would sound like. Well, the Oculuses in the future are going to be light as a pair of Ray-Bans. Blake, so snap out of it, you Luddite. But uh, but I want to go back to a, a a nice analogy that I think you make sometimes where you say the future of IVF, the doc's going to be like the air traffic controller. And I was thinking about that when I was reading this article, because you know what air traffic controllers are? They're invisible to the people who are flying the plane and they're burnt out. So I, I wonder if you have uh, people that are air traffic controllers and IVF, maybe that's not the best outcome. Yeah, you're exactly right, Dylan. That's um, a great example of using my example that is now less great by nature of you having poked a hole in it. I don't think we're going to see a full fertility world metaverse coming down the pipeline anytime soon, but you can pick your avatar uh, if you want to get ready, just in case. I will definitely do that. Hey, that was a cool article. I'm glad that we published it in Consider This. This is exactly the kind of thing that we're looking for, things that are kind of thought-provoking, fringy, um, hypothesis-generating, topical. Uh, we'd love to see more of those in the Consider This section. So if you have an idea, submit it. Let's uh, let's talk about it on the podcast. Well, I apologize for all of the uh, Game of Thrones references, some good, some bad, mostly bad. Um, but thanks for bearing with us and, and learning a little bit about the science coming out in FNS and the sister journals. That's all the time we have for today. Until we meet next month, toodaloo. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast is produced by Dr. Molly Cornfield and Dr. Adriana Wong. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.